You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. Good morning. Glad all of you are here this morning. Rather than uh, spending some time away on a long weekend, um, just uh, to say that it's such a joy to be back uh, here, just to share the word this morning. Um, I'm uh, uh, Andrew Wan. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the elders at uh, Cross Culture. Um, and I want to thank God for the opportunity that we can come to the end of our series on uh, God's plan for the world. And the last um, title of this sermon is The Cost of Faith or The Cost of Discipleship. And more specifically, it's the cost of discipleship. And uh, as we look at our first uh, verse in uh, verse 25 on Luke chapter 14, it opens up and says that Jesus had great crowds accompanying him. We see that Jesus is at the height of his popularity and fame. Uh, we don't know um, how many followers. It's a great crowd, and people uh, follow their uh, teacher for many different reasons. Some uh, would follow Jesus because they wanted to see him do miracles, doing the spectacular, uh, feeding 5,000, for example. And some may want to see Jesus' power at work, healing the sick healing those who are blind and lame, or even casting out demons. Or some people just want to come to Jesus to hear him speak with power and authority. So whatever the reason, Jesus wanted to make it clear that he is interested not just having followers, but disciples. So as we launch into this morning's uh, message, why don't we ask the Lord to lead us in a word of prayer? Let us pray. Dear God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, you have given us this opportunity to come before you and look into your word. We ask that you may lead us, open our eyes, that we may see glimpses of truth that you have for us. And, Lord, uh, help us illumining us uh, by your spirit, bring us to understand uh, your word for us this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. So the first question that we want to ask ourselves as we look at this chapter is, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? In Jesus' day, a disciple is just not a name given to someone. The word in Greek is mathesis, mathesis, meaning a learner or a pupil. It is someone who is learning from his teacher. And he has a relationship with his teacher. And during the first century, there were many philosophers, many teachers, many rabbis who would 
teach. And when they teach, you would have people that gather around them and listen. And soon these teachers would have a following. And they would set up shop, as they say, uh, with this group of followers. And they would be identified by the number of followers uh, that they have. And they are called disciples. They are called disciples. So one uh, is a disciple of Rabbi Hillel, for example, or Rabbi Shimel, for example. So a disciple is one who attaches himself or herself to a teacher. And he's learning and following his teacher in a relationship. But there's also more than that. Even here today, we can see that there is this form of discipleship. What do I mean? Welcome to the world of social media. Welcome to the world of social media. We have Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Twitter. That's all I can remember. There are many, many more out there. And you know what I mean. Uh, which enables anybody to make a name for himself or herself. They can put up uh, you know, uh, blogs or videos to publicize their skills, their looks, their favorite foods, their likes and dislikes, their opinions, all around the world to a global audience. And it does not cost much. Well, I put up the picture of Mr. Uh, Lionel Messi. We all know this uh, person. Guess how many followers he has? Lionel Messi. 400 million. And when you look at the population of the United States, it's 330 million. So, <laughs> you can be very famous and popular by chasing a ball around the field. Uh, and you can see um, people are following the idols. We call them these days uh, not teachers, they're called influencers. Influencers. Um, and uh, uh, if you are popular enough to be an influencer, do you know that if you have 1,500 followers, you get paid? You get paid for it? So there's fame and fortune. Um, and people are so obsessed and crazed by this phenomena that begin to model their behavior after their influences. And if they are in what their influences say, what they eat, what they wear, where they go, what they think, and gradually, guess what? They begin to live like their influences. Let's cast our minds back to Jesus' day. And that's what exactly what a disciple is. Not only do they follow, they learn, but they also start to think, start to think as the teacher uh, thinks. They start to do what the teacher does, and they start to say the things as he says. And they begin to see changes in their life as they take on the lifestyle of their teacher. They are being changed, they are being transformed. 
and they begin to sound like, act like, and look like their teacher. And that's what a disciple is. That's what a disciple is. So a disciple is someone who is a learner, who is a follower, and an imitator of Jesus Christ. And the challenge for us as Christian disciples in this world of social media, who is actually influencing our lives? Who are we following in the way we set our priorities, in the way we spend our time, our money, how we handle our relationships at work, in the family, in the community? Who are we learning and following and imitating as we live in this world? So are we modeling a lifestyle of being a learner, follower, and imitator of Jesus Christ? The three points I want to share with you this morning. The costs of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is serious business. Jesus did not put any sugar coating on what it costs to follow him. We will also look at the considerations of discipleship and the challenge of discipleship this morning. Looking at the cost of discipleship, there are three conditions that Jesus makes it very, very clear and we read that, thank you, uh, Margaret, for reading that to us in verse 26. This is what it says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What an anticlimax, isn't it? Jesus, at the height of his popularity, he says these words, very shocking and somehow revolting as well uh, for us. Uh, and it's been a cause of a lot of, a lot of misunderstanding, this, this verse here. But in the original Greek, it is not as harsh as hate. It is actually more like um, a detesting or despising. It's often used as a word to compare, the word to compare. Uh, and we know that the Bible does not contradict itself. It doesn't make sense when Jesus tells us in one section of the Bible to honor and love your parents and the other one to hate your uh, mother, father, parents, uh, siblings, and so on. No, this is not clearly what Jesus intends. He's actually talking about hate to show contrasts or comparison. Hate here simply means to love less, to love less. So that's the first condition. First condition of discipleship is unrivaled love. Unrivaled love. Our love for Christ must be so strong that all other loves is like hatred in comparison. In fact, we must also even hate our own lives. That's what he says. 
I want to share with you my testimony. I was converted when I was a teenager, at the age of 17, a long time ago, uh, at a gospel rally uh, in my local church. My life was joyful as I experienced the forgiveness and cleansing uh, from our Lord Jesus Christ. And all seems well until I decided to get baptized. Until I get decided to get baptized. But there was a problem. The problem was that my parents were Taoists. Uh, and the tradition of the Taoists, if you don't know, is that the eldest and the son must carry on tradition. The tradition of the Taoists is that they must continue ancestor worship. I was the eldest. I was the only son. So when I um, confessed my faith to my parents, there were fireworks. Fireworks. Uh, my mother went into a frenzy. And she was furious at my disobedience and rebelliousness. I was given a choice. You renounce Christianity or get out of the house. You renounce or you get out. It was a painful dilemma for me to go through um, as a teen, especially as I was the only Christian in my family at that time. Uh, the conflict was fierce. And that went on for weeks. Uh, I'm glad God gave me the courage and God was working in my family through my father who managed to appease my mother and said, look, you know, uh, it's just a passing phase. He's going to be, uh, uh, he's going to get over it. But it took weeks before we finally had some kind of reconciliation. And that's my testimony. Um, but Praise God, both my parents uh, became Christians uh, later on in life. I relate this because there will be times when our love for God will conflict, will clash with the loyalties that we have with our family and our dear ones. When this arises, Jesus says a disciple must choose which love will prevail, which love will prevail. And what is this kind of love that prevails? This is given, uh, a, we get a glimpse of it from the Apostle Paul. He tells us this. He tells us that, look, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, what will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we experience such love from God, we in, will indeed regard all other loves as less. The inseparable bond of love that God gives to us, to those who trust and believe in Him. 
the love that nothing can separate, not even death, nor life. The height and the breadth of that, uh, that, that transcends all our thinking. The challenge for us today is, have you experienced this love as a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is what God will give to us as we continue to love Him and obey Him. And we can imagine that this will make us more than conquerors in the life that we live beyond what we can imagine. So the disciples' love, the first condition, is that it must be unrivaled. It must be supreme over all other love. The second cost is given in uh, verse uh, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it involves carrying up your cross. What does this mean? Bearing your own cross. Our modern day, we use the common term, oh, I have to bear this cross. Uh, you know, what does it mean? For us, it means, oh, you know, it's a, it's a tough time. Uh, it's a hard uh, boss, hard uh, boss that I have at work. It's chronic illness, uh, my cross, a broken relationship. And some even think that, oh, it's is to wear a cross on your body and that's, that's just bearing your cross. But in Jesus' time, bearing your cross means crucifixion. It means certain death. And when we think of crucifixion, crucifixion is a method of killing invented by the Romans. A condemned person is nailed to the cross and left to die in the most horrific and agonizing way. And therefore, um, this is a sure death. But before he dies, you know what they ask the man to do? They carry their own cross. They have to carry their own cross uh, to the place of execution, as we see that in Jesus' um, crucifixion as well. So carrying your cross always leads to death. It's a symbol of torture, humiliation, and death. Uh, if someone took up his cross, he never came back. It's a one-way journey. He never comes back. It means certain death. So what does it mean to bear your own cross as a disciple? As a disciple of Jesus, it means, yes, dying. Yes, it's a dying to our selfish desires, our plans, and our ambitions. Is saying to Jesus, it's no longer I who's in control, but my privileges, my rights, I yield to you. Take control. So it's not a dying just once, it's a dying daily. We die daily to our passions, our desires, giving control over to Christ. As Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And Paul also expresses this dying as a, um, a sign of putting on and putting off. In Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that, look, uh, as you are imitating Christ, you are being transformed 
So you are taking off the old clothes and putting on the royal robes. He says that, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So in Christ, we are given these royal clothes. Put off your old, dirty, shabby, sinful life as a clothes and put on this new, transformed, royal robe that Christ gives us as a disciple, dying to self and living for Christ. The challenge is, for us is, are we seeing this renewal in our minds, in our conduct, as we follow him? Are we being transformed into his image uh, and likeness daily? The third condition is probably the hardest, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The first condition has to do with your heart, unrivaled love. The second has to do with your conduct, carrying your cross. The third has to do with your possessions, your money and your possessions. And that's the most unwelcome of all, because in our self-centered and materialistic society. We love our possessions. We love our possessions. So, what does Christ mean to give up all? Does it mean that I have to give all my money to the poor, to the church? Is that what discipleship entails? Matthew 19, we hear about this rich young ruler came to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answered, Well, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the rich ruler went away sorrowful because he was unwilling to part with his possessions. And notice what Jesus did. He didn't go after him. He didn't say, come, come, come. Uh, sorry, um, <laughs> I can you know, make it a bit easier for you. No. Let him go. And the disciples were so concerned, they said, wow, if that's the case, if it, that means giving up everything, then who can be saved? And Jesus answered, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And surrendering all, surrendering all, the last conditions, you have to surrender all, reminds me of a monkey trap. Have you heard of a monkey trap? Uh, do you know how people trap monkeys? First, they get a coconut, make a hole large enough for the hand of a monkey. They bury the coconut and put some peanuts into the coconut. And wait. And 
monkey comes along, he smells this uh, peanuts, and he puts his hand in and grabs the peanuts. And the monkey gets caught because they continue to hang on to the peanuts instead of letting its hand go and be free. The monkey hangs on and gets caught. So often, like the monkey, we cling and hang on to our possessions until it takes hold of our lives. We don't want to let go. It is mine. I deserve it. The result is, of course, we get worries, we get anxiety, sleepless nights, ulcers, or whatever. So, what God wants us to do is to surrender all to Him. He wants us to let go and let Him. Do you know when the young man said, what must I do? It is what he, he was self-doing. Rather, he should recognize it's not what I do, what I do to gain eternal life, but what God has done. What God has done. And this is what God has done. When we look at our possessions, we should look at it from the standpoint of being trustees and not owners. We are trustees. There are two ways that we can look at our possessions. We can hold them in our clench, our feast, and said, this is mine. I can do what I like with it. Or, you can hold them the other way around, in the gesture of giving, and said, Lord, this is what you have blessed me with. This is what I'm giving back to you. This is what someone says. It is not how little one can give that is the question. It is not how little one can give is the question. But how much God deserves. Do you see the difference? In the first case, you are in control. In the second, you recognize that you are just a caretaker for God. The possessions, your material wealth, they are just His blessings in your life. All you are is taking care of it and giving it back to God. So there is a difference. The real question for us really is, in this condition of discipleship, is how do we view our possessions? Our attitude towards our money, our possessions, is a clue to the reality of our discipleship. Are we asking the right question when we look at our things in our lives? Thank you, Lord. How much money of your money do I keep for myself? Tell me, rather than hanging it on as if we own it all. And that's, those are the three conditions of 
the cost of discipleship. Not an easy uh, condition. Jesus then goes to the considerations of discipleship. He gives us two parables. One is the parable uh, about a building. So that's in verse 28 to 30. 30. Uh, the construction of a tower. Um, and it gives impression that it's just not a house, it's a tower. It's something that is long-lasting. It's something that is quite, you know, elaborate um, as a construction project. It, it does take time. But the emphasis on that parable is that of completion. The emphasis on having to finish. Are you able to finish? And in order to do that, one must sit down and estimate the cost. In verse 28, you've got to sit down and estimate the cost. The idea is that one actually uh, starts to count the costs of this building project. Or else, if he fails, he becomes the laughing stock of the county uh, or the country or of his, of his community. And the second parable is about a king trying to go to war, verse uh, 31 to 32, against an army, a huge army of 20,000. When he only, he only has 10,000 people. And the consequence of misjudging is that he will probably be destroyed and it means he could suffer death. And to avoid this, he makes peace with the other king. And both parables are given by Jesus for a simple reason, is that when you approach discipleship, he's saying, make careful consideration. Consider carefully, in other words. Consider carefully what you are doing before you jump in to discipleship. Your life as, as a disciple is like building a tower. Have you actually counted the cost of building your life with the right foundations? And will you finish your life well? That's what he's saying. And as a, a king, as you are fighting a battle, are you looking at your life as you're fighting a battle with strong enemies in life? What is the end point that you are expecting? And consider how you will finish and how you can get to the end point uh, in victory. Uh, so the, the end point is not just having a good life on earth, but looking ahead and beyond uh, what is in eternity. What have you done to make peace with God who is going to judge all men, who is going to require all of us to give account? for our lives. So the end goal is finishing well. Building your life and the battles in your life. Have you considered carefully the costs? That's what he's saying of following him. Jesus says in Luke, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What good is it that you can have all the material things in this world, but at the end of your life, you will take nothing of it away and lose your own soul and your very self? Something to 
consider very carefully as you look at the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. My last point, the challenge of discipleship. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus concludes the section in verse 34. Salt is good. And salt, we know, uh, uh, in the uh, days of Jesus, uh, were used primarily for two um, types of uh, uh, things. One is to preserve and one is to season or add taste. Salt is tasteful. It not only preserves the food, it's tasteful, uh, it prevents uh, food from being uh, corrupted or decaying. Uh, it is tasty and enjoyable to eat. So the key word here, the challenge for us is effectiveness. 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 Are you effective in being a disciple? And salt, which is tasteless, can be tasteless, and does not have any preserving quality, is really worthless. It's not even fit uh, to be uh, 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 thrown on the soil or even on the dung heap. I want to end with a story. As a young man, he excelled academically, was respected, well-known around the world. He lived in a time of what we called perilous times. He was a German. It was the start of the Second World War. Knowing the dangers awaiting him, he had offers of pastorates in England and in the United States, and he politely turned it down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I have no right to be in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of my people. He had the opportunity to escape if he wanted but he remained true to Jesus rather than to be safe and comfortable. In 1940, he returned to Germany, into the lion's den. He bravely stood up for Jesus, suffered persecution under the Nazis. His church was shut down. He was implicated in a plot to overthrow Hitler together with his brother, his friend, they were all arrested and thrown into prison. And even in prison, he continued to preach, continued to hold services, continued to write letters. In April 1945, he was executed, one month before the end of the Second World War. He was 39 years old. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this the cost of discipleship. He writes, cheap grace, salt that is not tasty, is like cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It is grace without the cross. 
grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Bonhoeffer's life was a shining example of what it is like to be the salt of the world. His passion and his sacrifice in preserving the truth, going where he knew it was certain death. It was costly. It was costly for him. But well worth paying in his um, book. Loving Christ to the uttermost, even if it means giving up this earthly life. Jesus' challenge to us today is, is your life salty? Are you making an impact on the lives of the people around you? And thanks, Margaret. Grace and truth. You have this. What are you doing about it? Are you going to get one of these and go around your neighborhood and tell someone about the gospel? And be salty, even though it costs you your comfort? And that's what it means. And that is the message that Christ wants to tell us about the cost of discipleship. He says this, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, this is the cost of discipleship. For all of us who have put our hands on the plow and going forward for his glory and for his honor, Jesus is not seeking popularity. He is not in a popularity contest. He is not going to be a very uh, famous or popular influencer in our words today. He is not after millions of followers, but he is after the faithful and obedient disciple who is willing to pay the price, who is who's willing to have an unrivaled love for him, who's willing to bear their cross, who's willing to surrender all their rights to their possessions. If you are not a Christian today, here for the first time, uh, please don't be alarmed by all these uh, very strong um, uh, conditions. Because being a disciple of Jesus Christ is the only way that you can resolve the problem of sin in your life. You need to settle that question. He went to the cross to die for your sins and mine. So that we can come back to God. So I hope if you are here for the first time, you don't know Jesus Christ, please stay back, have a word with some of the leaders around you, or maybe myself, um, and we'll be glad to have a chat with you. So let us close with a word of prayer as we think through what God has spoken to us this morning through the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Dear God, we know that, Lord, this is not easy for many of us. 
but it is necessary to, in order to follow and to obey you more closely and more deeply. Dear God, continue to help and guide us along this path of discipleship that we may be more and more like Jesus each day. May our lives reflect his glory and power to redeem, transform and renew lives. Help us to become more obedient and faithful disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.